0: The First Battle of Smolensk was a part of the second phase of Operation Barbarossa on the Eastern Front in 1941. Eighty years later, a group of enthusiasts came together to reenact that battle in the middle of the United States. My friend Ben Tracy was at the reenactment. We're going to hear all about it in this episode of The Reenactors' Corner. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with a special in-studio guest. It is Ben Longfellow Tracy. How are you doing, Ben? Pretty good. Pretty good. Nice to be back. Glad to have you on the show again. Um, I'm excited for our conversation today. We are going to be talking about an event that uh, Ben went to recently. He's going to tell us all about it and what he liked about it and why he liked it so much. Can't wait. Uh, all right, so why don't we just jump into it, Ben. Uh, why don't you just tell us what the event was and uh, maybe give some background on it and
1: uh, take it from there. So, as of the date of recording, it is um, 80 years since Operation Barbarossa, or um, 80 years uh, the operation would be going on You know, concurrently in you know, into August, starting in, what is it, uh, June 21st, uh, 1941, and so 80 years since the beginning of, you know, the so- uh, of the German-Soviet War on the Eastern Front in World War II. And so, um, last month in July, I went to a reenactment of the Battle of Smolensk in 1941 um, in Indiana, uh, Logansport, Indiana. And it was a really good time. Definitely one of the best field events I've done in a damn long time. And, uh, yeah, it was hosted uh, on the Soviet side by uh, Military History Club Astoshnik, which is largely based out of the Midwest. And I was very, very impressed by everything I saw, and I think everybody really brought their A-game.
0: It sounds great. Um, for people who are listening who, who don't know where we are or aren't familiar with the geography here, we're in... Massachusetts
1: and uh, Logansport, Indiana. I mean, how long would it take if you had driven that <laughs> straight? I believe it was something like 17 hours. I actually calculated the distance um, from Berlin to Smolensk, and then I calculated the distance between Boston and Logansport, and the German advance to the Soviet Union at that time in World War II was slightly greater than the distance from Boston to Logansport. So... Yeah, it's, first of all, it kind of gives you a, a, a sense of scale, of the Eastern Front in America. But second of all, it was—it would have been a hell of a drive to do alone. So I ended up uh, flying um, and then carpooling. So that worked out great. So what about, um, you know,
0: kind of the preparations for this event, the lead up to it? Um, you know, what what did you know about the event before you decided to go? Why did you decide to go?
1: I knew absolutely nothing about the events. Um, I had seen a few pictures of the sites um, that had been posted by local people who had gone, but basically I had no idea what to expect whatsoever. Um, I'd never even been to Indiana before. I don't even know I didn't even know what Indiana looks like. <laughs> so um, yeah, I I basically went in with a total clean slate. Now, granted a lot of the people who were there, a lot of the participants, um, are you know people who I met online, who I regard as friends, many of whom uh, I'd become acquainted with at some of the Ohio Stalingrads, and so I was expecting maybe some shades of uh, Ohio Stalingrad um, in terms of what was there, but it wasn't in the factory, so the factory added a whole other element to reenacting so because that you know doesn't exist anymore um wasn't going to be a future of this I didn't I didn't know what I didn't I had total clean slate so so what made you decide to go I'd been to a really good event in Gettysburg Pennsylvania um like a month before and that basically sort of Wet my appetite, left me wanting more, like, it left me wanting more of an adventure, because that Gettysburg event had been, like, a cool road trip adventure for Chris and I. And also, some friends of mine announced they were going. And so I thought, you know, between, like, people I know announcing they were going to go, and, like, wanting, like, all of a sudden having an appetite for, like, a reenactment adventure, I thought, what the hell, why not? Time to, like book a flight, and, like, make final preparations. So you do both
0: uh, Soviet and German reenacting?
1: Yep, correct. You did
0: Soviet for this one? Yep, correct. W- what what was the draw there, or why'd you
1: make that choice? Um, well, <laughs> we joked about this, Chris, but uh, I, like, sort of on my own accord, I put together an entire 1941 Soviet kit, which is, I mean, it's rather different from the later war kit, and... Uh, I would argue that as, you know, sort of Soviet infantrymen kits go, it's probably a bit more expensive, too. Like, at the beginning of the war, they were wearing SSH-36 and SSH-39 helmets, which are a bit more difficult to find in restored condition. Um, they just were issued more field gear. And, you know, they had, like, a couple of different types of pack in, in service, like a like a rucksack and, like, a tornister-style of pack, the ranyats. And, you know, they they had Y-straps, they just, they had more field gear, it was, like, more complicated, and, I mean, it's interesting having, you know, also doing later war Soviet, you can really see how, basically, they just eliminated all sort of superfluous features um, to, like, win the war. And, I mean, that's, it's, it's, I don't want to sort of hyper-focus on, you know, the difference between early and late war stuff, because that's kind of a trope. But it is kind of interesting to see how you know late war kit is very bare bones, and the pre-war early war kit it's rather complicated. Sure. Um, So once you,
0: once you decided to go to this um, because you had you know the kit for it and your friends were going to go that you met online, what you know once you registered, um, you know this was kind of like a sort of a campaigner style event, right? Where yeah. everybody was kind of put under the same chain yeah. of command. There weren't different units
1: going. Yeah, it was interesting how they did it. Um, I'd never sort of seen this before at an event, basically just like everybody's assigned like everybody's assigned to a squad. And I was placed in a sort of Facebook Messenger group chat with the people from my squad where we could coordinate like who's bringing what, um, et cetera, and also just to sort of get to know everybody from the squad. And I thought that was helpful because some of the some of the people in the leadership of my squad I'd met before at uh, Stalingrad and, you know, I'd interacted with before online, but a lot of people in the squad I wasn't so familiar with. And so it kind of, you know, if you're going to be like sharing foxholes with these people for a weekend, um, it, it kind of eased you into it, um, which I liked. I appreciated that. Um, yeah, that's, that's
0: really cool. I've, I've never really heard about an event doing that before where you, you know, you're kind of falling in with people that you don't know, but you're sort of introduced
1: to them before the event via a group chat. Yeah. So they don't sort of throw you all in the mix together. Like there's, you know, there's some, there's some like banter, there's some jokes. You like, you kind of get a sense of people's personality and whatnot and their interests. And I think that really helped. That's cool. Um, so then it was time for you
0: to go to the event, which of course is going to be its own story, right? Of a
1: a long journey. Sure. Sure. I mean, it was a hell of a road trip, you know, like it was like, I like flew down to my best friend lives in Atlanta. And then we took this sort of epic cross country road trip, um, you know, through Georgia and, and Tennessee and Kentucky, And we stopped off in Louisville, you know, and again, I think a part of the experience was the adventure, Um, you know, the road trip. Um, I've said this before, but like, I honestly do believe that some of the strongest friendships I've made uh, in reenacting have been sort of through road trips. Um, I feel like, you know, all the people who I regard as, you know, close to me in reenacting, I've gotten to know on these, like, long-duration, epic cross-country road trips because you really find out the character of a person when you got to spend, you know, six, eight, ten hours stuck in a car with them. Sure. Um, you know? Like Chris, I think I got to know you, um, like largely through you know road trips that we took going to events. I know we've talked about this before, yeah. but I actually have no recollection of how it
0: was that we met and became friends and got to know each other. Which
1: is weird. It's <laughs> so funny. No recollection. It's funny because I remember it was uh, it was Fort Mifflin, uh, twenty fifteen. Like yeah. I don't know
0: how I got your phone number. Even you know what I mean. Uh, the whole thing is so obscure. That's another. Postumous that's another. That's another
1: story for another day. I feel like. Uh, but, uh, sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Reenactment road trips are like inherently fun. I mean, a road trip is fun. Yeah. And one of the things I like about reenacting is that it kind of forces you to take these weird road trips, you know, where you travel to some other place, even if it's only like four hours. Sure. Um, Sure.
1: Sure.
0: Or less. Yeah. Or less. Right. I mean, it could be uh, an hour and a half. Yeah. You you know, you never know what you're really going to find on the road. And exactly. of course, I'm sure there are people listening to this who drive for a living, who drive, you know, a thousand miles a week every week and who are kind of scoffing at this. But the reality is there's a lot of people who probably, you know, maybe they only very rarely travel more than a half an hour or yeah. an hour away from where they live. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. uh reenactment, you know, like the furthest I've ever gone for an event is like around a, a 10 hour drive or Same. a bit more. Um, I went to the D-Day Ohio events, the, I'm not D-Day, uh, the Stalingrad Ohio events. Those, those were far and, uh, went to Torrance, Pennsylvania, which is in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. That's far from here to do an event in an abandoned insane asylum, which is really cool. awesome. cool. That so sounds cool awesome. Spot. Um, so this, this was the furthest that you'd ever gone, um, you know, it must have been fun, uh, the, the road trip aspect, especially where you were leaving from Atlanta. Yeah. You know, you're going
1: through an area of the country, states that you would never been to before. Yeah. I, I calculated it out and it was something like, uh, 3,200 miles total, like a thousand miles, you know, by air to Atlanta and then 600 each way by road or, th- sorry, 2,000 miles total by air, 1,000 each way to Atlanta and then 1,200 total by road. It was like a nine-hour uh odyssey. Crazy. And I thought that, like, in terms of miles, I had the longest trip. But then I found out that there were some people from California who went to the same event who, like, they drove from California, cross-country, and that actually was, like, 4,000 miles or something total. So, like, first of all, respect to them for doing that. But, yeah, second of all, <laughs> they had me beat <laughs>
0: What about your pre-event prep? Uh, you know, you had to fly with your kit.
1: I know that's something you've done before when you were, you know, in Europe.
0: You yeah, did yeah. This.
1: So, the, the preface to this, the last time I flew to a reenactment had been when I was studying abroad in Europe. And so this is the first and so far only time that I've flown to an event in the States. And so, like, you know, I'm like a little nervous because, like, I have to check a bag. Um, And I have, you know, like, my helmet and my entrenching tool and, like, you know, all this stuff in my carry-on. Or, sorry, not my carry-on, my check bag. And it's just, like, is security going to, like, go in there and, like, confiscate something, you know? And also just, like, considering how far I was going, just, like, I'm, I'm sweating bullets, like, did I forget something? Like, did I forget my pants or my boots or something?
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that could have yeah, been a disaster.
1: Totally, totally, totally. But I, you know, I, I checked, I, I double checked, I triple checked, and I didn't forget anything. So that was good. It was one sort of funny anecdote is, so I had, uh, three bags, um, a checked bag and a, a backpack, the Ranyats, which counts as a personal item on a uh, Delta, which was the carrier I took and then, like, a carry-on bag. And I had a couple of bags of macaroni and kasha that I had put inside my raniats And so, like, I'm going through um, airport security, and they pull the raniats aside. And I'm just thinking, oh, no. Like, what's in there? Did I, like, leave a blank in there, you know? Or, like, did I leave, like... Did I accidentally, like, leave a knife in there? Or, like, something, like, that's, like, not gonna make me look good. And the lady is really having a difficult time because I don't know if it's a German, I don't know if everybody knows what a raniets is, but it's basically like a tornister and it's got like two straps in the bottom and I've got like an overcoat attached to the top of it. And so like the lady's like trying to like take the overcoat off. And I'm just like, I try to like reach over and help. And she's just like, you can't touch this as part of the policy. And I'm like, you have to, like, undo the straps at the bottom. Like, it's a really unusual, not intuitive style of pack. <laughs> and so she opens it up, and she just, like, she takes, like, and, like, Kasha is falling out, and macaroni. And I'm just thinking, like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it's like the joke, you fell down and spaghetti fell out of your pocket. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Macaroni and Kasha, in this case. So. But they put it all back in. Uh, yeah, they put it all back in. They didn't take anything. So that was good. That was good. But um, yeah, so we get to Atlanta, and then you know we like hung out in Atlanta, and then we take this. Uh, we left on Thursday, and we took this sort of like all day road trip. Um, stopped off in Louisville, Kentucky, and then we got to the site on Friday. And so we pull up in the parking lot again. Like I don't really know what to expect when I when I what heard, time was it sometime in the afternoon, my brain was kind of fried at that point, but I think it was probably going to be like two or three, maybe later. Um, But, anyways, so, we like get changed, and I can see a bunch of German reenactors pulling up, I don't know any of them, I think I see a guy from my squad, you know, like, arriving on, arriving at, arriving at events, I feel like, is always sort of a, a weird mixed bag, you know, and, uh, This is maybe like a personal pet peeve, but like something that is like anxiety inducing for me is. Sometimes I'll be, like, trying to, like, change in a uniform, and then somebody I know will, like, come up to me as I'm, like, half undressed and be like, hey, how are you? You know, and I'm just thinking, like, please let me change first. Yeah, that's such a classic reenactment moment. You know, just like, hey, I haven't seen you since, like, so-and-so. I'm just thinking, like, hey, really want to talk, but, like, yeah. let me get my pants don't on. I pants on, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, but, like, none of that happened. That was fine. so, I had pre-registered. It was $40. Um... And then when I first saw pictures of the site, it was, I saw that it was in, like, a deciduous forest, which I was admittedly slightly crestfallen by because um, when I think of Operation Barbarossa, I just think of, like, endless step, you know, just, like, vast tracts of farmland um, and, you know, tanks rolling over them and, uh, you know, fighting at range um, with infantry behind them and uh so i was like ah indiana like i was thinking like this place would be in the middle of a of a bunch of corn of a bunch of cornfields or something and it wasn't but that ended up really not being a problem and i know also there's parts of the soviet union that are forested heavily forested so again i i really don't pass judgments and the forest it was cool uh, i will say i'd never been to indiana before and i was very much i I don't think I'd actually really driven through um, an area of the country that looked like that. I mean, i had been to Ohio, but Ohio doesn't really have that sort of flat farmer's fields going on for as far as the eye can see. And uh, it was a little disconcerting for me. Like, there's so much sky. Um, And then we saw some, like, crazy cloud formations. And, you know, like, there was one place where... Um, like, the road was blocked, and, like, I, like, went out and I, like, asked the construction worker, like, if there was a detour, and his first response was no, and then his second response was, it's back the way you came. <laughs> and it's just, like, the only highway, so we had to, like, find some back road way around this, because there was a giant hole in the road that they were fixing, and you literally could not pass. But I think the real character of the site can be gotten from my first... 20 minutes there. So after we, we registered, we walked down this long um, dirt road from the parking area.
0: Now, some, some people had been on site and reenacting since, what, the day before? Yeah,
1: yeah. So we got there sort of like maybe mid to late afternoon on um, Friday. And there had been some people who had rolled in, you know, 24 hours earlier, if not more. Um, and so, yeah, we like walked down this long dirt Access road from the parking area to uh, where the Soviet headquarters is. And so I report there, um, I see some friendly faces. Um, I was told that, you know, they just serve food and to get my mess tin out, and I would receive some soup. And so they had a, a kitchen set up with dedicated cooks, which was awesome. And so I got a mess tin full of soup and a loaf of bread. And then an officer ex- escorted me to our fighting position, which was basically this horseshoe-shaped ring of foxholes um, on this, uh, in this uh, sort of a uh, copse of trees um, overlooking a road. And uh, that would be where I spent most of the weekend. And so I get there, I report, um, and then a sergeant assigns me to a foxhole. And he tells me, he instructs me to enlarge it. And I, I mean, in my time there, um, the sergeant returned to gave me ammunition, to give me ammunition. Um, a political commissar found me and delivered unto me a letter from home. And another soldier who, uh, had been taking Fox souls and was like local of the area stop by to warn me of poisonous spiders that uh, are something to be cautious of and that are native in the area and so that was pretty cool so like I'm in this foxhole I'm weary from my travel and we receive word that the Germans are on the move and you know I'm you know I, I just want to eat my soup um, I'm tired, and then all of a sudden, through the trees, I hear this, om- this ominous rumbling, and it's getting louder, and it's getting closer, and it is the sound of a half-track motor, and all of a sudden, I'm no longer tired, I'm 100% focused, and it's, I'm just thinking, I need to burrow inside the earth like a, some sort of rodent, or I'm going to get crushed by an armored machine. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, it was, like, late afternoon, and so, like, as we're there, it's, like, getting darker, and, like, there's intermittent rain falling, and and the Germans, you know, try probing us, but um, and the one thing I'll hand it to them is, uh, this, like, our sergeants, you know, our NCOs in charge of our position were very good at redirecting people around as necessary um, to repel various attacks, and so... I didn't have the full picture of what was going on, but I was confident that the people in charge of me had the full picture of what was going on and were using me effectively as needed. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the scale of the event. How many people were there? Let's see. On the Soviet side, we had maybe 60, 70 people and then like 50 on the German side. And some, like, so it was probably maybe like 120 participants and that was the most reenactors I think I had ever seen, since uh, at an event since uh, the Stalingrad event, which was sort of the end of reenacting for a long time. Um, yeah, because so, it was the last large scale event before the before, yeah before the world ended, you know. Um, so I feel like Stalingrad was uh, for me that event has sort of bittersweet um, sense of magnitude to it like this is like the last big thing in a while if not ever like because we didn't know what was going to happen we didn't know like what was reen- what reenacting was going to look like at the end of this thing um so i kind of feel like the people who were at the stalingrad event um we share this uh very unique experience of having been at this reenactment um I talked about this in previous episodes, but it was a very sort of surreal experience to be at this reenactment, um, as this global disaster is sweeping the country. Sure. So, uh,
0: you said a sergeant came to give you ammunition after you got there. Was that something that you had arranged in advance? Because obviously you couldn't fly with blanks. No, right?
1: no, no. So what had happened was um, basically I ordered some blanks to uh, my best friend's house, but because I ordered them. Two weeks in advance instead of four weeks in advance, they didn't arrive in time, and so I was, I like had to scramble, um, to like figure something out because I initially tried to like ship them to somebody, but that was a real hassle to do, I had to go to like, UPS, USPS can't do it, and so I had to go to like, I went to like a FedEx and like a normal FedEx can't do it, so they told me to like go to a hub, and basically just, I didn't have the time in my day to like, go to this special location, and they said I had to, like, print out some sort of shipping label, so this big castle. So, basically, fortunately, um, one of my guys who drove up from Texas brought, like, 400 browns of blanks, and he's just like, yeah, just like, I'll sell you some blanks, just pay me X amount of money, and I'll, I'll deliver them to you on site. And so, basically, that was, that was what that was, basically. Um... We talked about after how it would be cool to issue out ammunition to people. And I hope that's done in the future. But I know, you know, with a a large amount of participants, that can be somewhat difficult to do.
0: What's the cost, uh, approximately, of uh, blanks for the the Mosin-Nagant rifle? Let's
1: see. Um, I think I ordered something like 120 rounds, and it was like... Fifty dollars um, plus shipping um, for like a hundred twenty rounds of the short
0: tip, so that winds up coming out to around fifty cents a round or something. Yeah, yeah.
1: Which is kind of expensive. It is kind of expensive. Yes. So, kind of say le vie. You know, you got to pay the you got to pay the price of uh, of, uh, of reenacting sometimes. Totally. So. So what about
0: uh you know back to the event you're you're in your foxhole in the forest uh, it's getting dark yeah. rain's falling you know uh did you know at that time like you, i guess you must have probably gathered that you were going to be spending the night in that position yeah
1: yeah um something i'd always wanted to do is spend the night in a foxhole like myself and um Something that we experience here in New England is it's very hard to dig holes. Um, It's very unpleasant to dig holes uh, by hand. Because New England is basically one giant deposit of unstratified glacial till left out from the last ice age. And so there's a lot of rocks in the ground. And one of the things which is sort of iconic to New England is these stone walls from the colonial era where these farmers were tilling their fields, and there were so many rocks in the ground, they just stacked them up to basically form property dividers uh, with their neighbors. Um, so, it was, digging in Indiana was much, much easier. Um, there was not a single rock in the ground, which was unusual. Um, but, um, yeah, it became pretty clear to me that we were going to spend our night in our positions, um, and that basically I should expect to be there for the duration and, you know, like it didn't rain that heavily through the night, but there was definitely some titter-patter rainfall and I had my Chanel, my overcoat. I had my Plage Pilotka, which is like a, a rain cape and that was it. And, um, the one thing I, I did miss about, uh, the German kit at this event is, uh, a mosquito net, um, there were definitely a lot of, uh, biting insects, and so, yeah, um, we, I definitely walked out of that event with a lot of bug bites, but, uh, it, you know, it got dark, and, uh, the fighting sort of died down, and, uh, yeah, uh, there was some, like, trench raiding at night, um, some of the guys from California, I was pretty impressed. Um, well, a lady from the group had accurately reproduced the, so like there's the, you know, there's a, there's a couple of different types of Soviet, um, camouflaged suit, which was used by, uh, were used by like border troops and snipers and whatnot. And she had accurately reproduced the two piece, like scout and sniper and sapper suit. Um, and there's amoeba camouflage, and then later in the war, they came out with, like, this leaf print camouflage, which is uh, similar stuff they were still using in the 80s, but they also had uh, these suits which were basically covered in grass, um, dried grass, and she had accurately reproduced these suits, uh, which were, like, green cotton, and then I think they, I don't know if it was fake or real grass, but it looked pretty real, and they had, like, these guys, basically, just looked like a bunch of swamp monsters, <laughs> and they like went out and they like went trench raiding, and they were like really effective, you know. Um, so, I thought that was pretty cool. That is cool. Um, you know, what did it rain? How much did it rain? It rained intermittently. Um, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad on the Friday or um. At night, but it definitely rained a bit on Saturday. I didn't feel compelled to deploy my plush as a cape until Saturday. <clears throat> like, I was definitely damp at the night on on Friday, but uh, it didn't uh, it didn't really start to saturate until Saturday. Um, one more anecdote, by the way. So, I, like, shine my light on my rannis as I'm about to go to sleep in this foxhole that I've... I didn't dig it all myself, but I... It was... Pretty small when I got it, and I enlarged it to basically fit two people or be able to lie down in. Um, and uh, so I shine my light over in my Renyets, my like Soviet tornister, and there's a giant mouse eating my kasha out of my Renyets. <laughs> I like the term
0: giant mouse. <laughs> It's li- like the world's largest miniature horse, you know?
1: <laughs> well, okay, I later looked it up, and I believe it was actually a wood rat.
0: Okay, sure, yeah. Which,
1: bigger uh, than a mouse. Yeah, bigger than a mouse, but, like, smaller than, like, a city rat. <laughs> it was really cute. How dirty did you get uh laying in the ground there? It's probably one of the filthy, like, except for that one time where, like, I deliberately asked for people to pour mud on me at, like, a, a work party, um... This is probably the filthiest that I got at an event. Eh, maybe I shouldn't say that. I did um, slather my uniform in Vaseline and then dust myself in a <laughs> mixture of coal dust and crushed brick for uh, the first couple of credits. Yeah, then drag yourself through the dusty factory. Yeah, then drag myself the dusty asbestos hell. you know? Uh, what about the
0: mosquitoes uh, at uh, Smolensk?
1: They were all over me, man. They were all over me. I was a buffet for, you know, various types of insects. Um, I did find one tick on me, which I was mildly concerned because I think Lyme disease is uh, is a bit more prevalent in that part of the country. And it was a small guy. But, like, no red ring, no weird feeling. Although, maybe I should get myself tested for Lyme disease. How much sleep did you get that night? Three hours.
0: Yeah, that's I got not th- a lot. I got three hours of sleep. So... So, you know, was, uh, you, you personally, you were basically on the defensive all night or?
1: Yeah, we were like on the defensive all all night. Like there wasn't that much combat through the night. Um, I think in a more perfect world, there might have been, but again, I'll kind of give it a pass because it was this, it was the first time they had done this. Um, also from personal experience, it is very hard to to sustain 24 hour combat. Like a lot of sites don't do it for that reason. Now, granted, I think we hit the scale for it, but, um, yeah, I only got three hours of sleep, you know, sleeping in my filthy hole, and I woke up in the morning, you know, I probably didn't manage to get asleep sleep until about three, and I woke up at about six, and uh, I just, you know, I, I like stirred, and I realized I'm not going to sleep anymore, like, I'm totally exhausted, but like, what the hell, and so... I was sent by the officer in charge of our position to the headquarters to ask when breakfast is ready. And I was told to come back at, like, 7. And so we all, at 7 o'clock, we all tramped over with our mess tins. And the one thing I'll say that I was very impressed by is, I think I mentioned that there was a dedicated cook staff at this event. But every single meal that was promised was delivered upon. And the food was bountiful in proportions, and it was also accurate. They were using a like a 1930s dated Red Army cookbook. And one of the cooks had explained to me that um, in the pre war years, um, Soviet food was, uh, or that the Soviet soldiers' food was, uh, it was a little better. Um, during the war, due to shortages, they had to simplify a lot of the recipes. But because this is a 1941 event, we got the good food. And so. I think for for breakfast that morning there was like a like a sweet bread and um, like an oatmeal. You know, you could put some sugar in it if you wanted, and uh, there was coffee too, which of course is a is a godsend, and that was really tasty. What were the other meals that you got? Because they, they they were already making food. Yeah, the the first meal I got. Oh shoot, it was some sort of like a like a vegetarian. Uh, uh, stew and then on saturday evening um there was another type of stew i it had like i think like sashimi in it it was similar to actually some some meals we've made with 26 no sashimi is raw fish oh i'm an idiot <laughs> Shashlik, you mean like yeah, the meat yeah, thing? Yeah, okay, yeah yeah sashimi a sushi okay. stew a sushi it stew <laughs> if, if, if it were
0: uh excellent Oh well. <laughs> now let me ask you this: You didn't actually. Did you
1: have to eat any of the food that you brought? No, not really. That's cool. Not really. Um, I I had like a little snack to hold me over in uh, in the field. Um, actually, to jump ahead a, a few hours on Saturday, like a couple people in my squad just like made a sort of impromptu stew using some ingredients they had in in you know on their person, and that was pretty tasty. Um, I always, I've always found that like impromptu meals at reenactments can be really good or entertaining, you know, um, because people got to come together. They got to be a little intuitive. They got to, you know, show some ingenuity. And so that was, that was pretty tasty. So let's, let's talk about that Saturday. You know, how did the course of the day go? It was good. Um, I think we performed very well in the field. Um, that day, basically, I forget how it kind of all started, but I think at like 8 o'clock, um, the Germans made a push, and we repelled it, and you know, then the Germans pushed again, and we repelled it, then we counterattacked, and um, then like, I didn't ever feel bored there because I was constantly being shuffled around to different foxholes the different positions by NCOs. Um, at one point in the day, I was uh, taken to guard the headquarters. At another point in the day, I was taken to, like, guard a road in the field. Um, so I didn't ever really feel truly bored. And, um, like, at some point during the day, the rain really intensified. And so I, like, on my my plash pilotka as a cape, which had previously been the ground cover at the bottom of my foxhole, so it was absolutely covered in dirt, Um, and so I'm just, I'm like, I'm like staring at the trees, like looking for like movement, like the glint of a helmet, something, Uh, you know, like pale flesh against, you know, the dark, uh, the dark leaves, and you know, raindrops are like pitter-pattering on the hood of my uh, Plash pilatka and on you know my SS stage 36 helmet. and it was a it was like a real moment. Um, and there were a lot of those. There was a lot of digging at the events um, when we were sort of idle in our positions. A lot of us took the time to enlarge our foxholes, which was pretty cool. Um, so yeah. Also, as a side note, I will say it was cool to see. Um, all the Soviets, I mean, granted, I think this is easier to do with Soviet than with German, but pretty much all the Soviets were uniformly, uh, dressed, um, in that they all had the, you know, the 1935 slash 40 style, um, raspberry collar tabs or, you know, technical or uh, medical, depending on their, uh, on the branch that they were doing. And a lot of the I was I was expecting to see some SSH forty helmets, which is the wartime model of helmet, which is still fairly commonly available as a post-war um, because they were produced until like 1960 and remain the same. But a lot of people had um, SSH thirty-six or forty helmets. Um, somebody commented that was probably the largest collection of SSH thirty-six helmets that had ever been assembled in North America. And I believe it. Uh original SSH thirty six helmets, I should say. Well, restored ones. Yeah, restored ones. Um but for those who don't know, the SSH thirty six helmet is it's like the helmet that was used but it was produced by the Soviets from nineteen thirty six to nineteen thirty nine. It looks um like a kind of a cross between a French Adrian helmet and a World War One German helmet. It definitely sort of draws influence from both, and that it's got these Uh, wings on the side of it um that protect the ears but it's got like a comb on top um that protects a ventilation hole and um they're a bit more pricey than uh than uh some of the uh you know the 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 post-war SSH 40 but they're cool looking and uh how many helmets from your personal horde did you bring to the event i brought two Um, I brought, uh, my SSH 36 helmet, um, which I wore and no, I didn't just bring an extra helmet for kicks. I brought my SSH 39 helmets to lend to a friend. Uh, so yeah, to sort of bolster the number of helmets that we had.
0: Um, so that was kind of, that was your first time doing an event in that kit.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And what, what were the takeaways from that? Interesting.
1: Um, so I came to appreciate I, like I came to appreciate a few things about the Soviet kit, but I also came to sort of miss and appreciate a, th- a few things about the German kit. Um, so, for starters, the Soviet gymnastrika has no belt loops. It has sort of no suspension system for the belt and field gear. And if 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 it's a 1941 event, um, if it's like an early war event you're carrying a lot more field gear, and so it, like, kind of drags down. And so they were issued with these Y-straps, but unlike the German Y-straps, which are can be cumbersome, but just uh, click on, uh, clip on, the Soviet Y-straps straps, um, are, like, attached to the belt, but they're, they keep everything in its place, but they're a bit more cumbersome to basically set up. Um... Also, let's see, what else, what else, what else?
0: I mean, it's definitely very different from the German kit. Yeah. And I think it's different from totally. the later war Soviet kit that you've done before. Totally.
1: Um, another thing, too, is since this was a 41 event, um, I have a Soviet gas mask bag, and I have a reproduction or post-war, com- like, guts inside so that I have the full, you know, anti-gas setup, which was the regulation, um, you know, before the war, and I think probably for certain troops throughout the war. But uh, it's my understanding that, you know, at some during some battles later in the war, during some campaigns, it was fairly common for troops to ditch um, the gas mask and keep um, whatever in there. Um, but because I had all the, the gas mask, and the filter, and the anti-gas sheet... And the decontamination kit inside mine, um, I couldn't do that. And so, basically, I couldn't, I had to, the Soviet mess tin um, on the pre-war kit is carried in a couple of different ways, but on the Ranyets pack, which is very similar to the German 1895 Tornister, it's carried on the pack, Um, and then the... Drinking cup nestles inside the mess tin, and so basically, um, there were a few points in the day where, like, there might have been food available, and I had I had dropped the rannets pack at the foxhole, and I wasn't there, and so like I didn't have like a vessel to put the food in, but with my German kit, um. The uh, you know you wear a bread bag and the canteen and the mess tin and the drinking cup all sort of clip to each other and are carried on the belt on the bread bag, and it's interesting. I, I came to appreciate something about Soviet you know kit evolution. So in 1939 they adopted this uh, they adopted this very small rucksack and this bread bag type thing which goes on your belt. And the bread bag—it's not like a German bread bag. It's more just like a little pouch that, like, is like a fanny pack. It contains like the mess tin and the drinking cup and whatnot. And then, like, you put the rest of your stuff in the small rucksack. And I think the idea is, if you're like in a position or something, you can ditch the rucksack, but then you'll always have your mess tin and canteen on you um, and uh, drinking cup uh, throughout the you know, when you need it. And at first I didn't understand why they had gone over to this like two piece uh field gear system, but now I think I have a better understanding of why they did that.
0: Sure. So yeah. So how did the combat go on Saturday? I mean did you see much of the Germans?
1: <sighs> yeah, um we did. We it, it went really well. I think we I think we pretty much ruled the field. Um there was like one point where we were about to be overrun and we were ordered to make like a strategic withdrawal and then we regrouped and we immediately counterattacked and before the Germans could really even get comfortable in our old position we just totally overwhelmed them um which was cool and um something which i really have to hand the event is i thought the communication was very effective um so we had a there was like we had like a, a field phone landline um running from our sort of horseshoe position to the headquarters. And I think there was a problem with that, so they implemented a runner system later in the day. And then there were also dedicated comms people there with, like, a, a, a short-range a short backpack radio. And so we had three different forms of uh, communication, and I think the inter-squad communication was very, very slick. And it was also cool to see people in, you know, technical roles doing, like, dedicated communications. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, again, we talked about this in the last podcast episode. This was one of the questions, but I think the scale of the event allowed for a diversity of different roles. Like, obviously, I was, you know, just doing infantry in my foxhole, but um, there were people doing dedicated communications. There were dedicated cooks. There was a dedicated medical staff. Um, there were a couple of political commissars, you know, who. They would, you know, give speeches and they would distribute mail and they would come check in on you, ask to make sure how you were doing, etc. So I thought everybody, every player, you know, played their part brilliantly, I thought. That's cool. And I thought everybody was sort of in it to win it. Um, everybody. The other thing, too, which I commented to you about this earlier, Chris, is... um this is the first event that I think I've ever done in which all the leadership, everybody in charge um, on the Soviet side, was was under thirty years old, um, and I thought there was a realism to that too, sure, and that people in World War II would have gone off to fight with their generational cohort. Many did, and you now, know. Maybe most did. Most did, and you know, you hear like whole. You know, villages, graduating classes, generations of young men go off to war, <clears throat> and so yeah, I thought that I thought that was cool to be with people who were my own age for you know the entire time. I thought that, in a sense, added to the realism. Also, it's just like this event gave me a lot of hope because <clears throat> I'm a young person who gives a shit about World War II, and you know, it's I. I have a fear that reenacting might be, might be sort of dying or stagnating. Uh, but um, after this event, I feel really in- reinvigorated about the future of reenacting. I'm confident that all the people who were there at this event are, you know, not all of them, but some of these some of these people are going to be leaders in the hobby into the next ten, twenty, thirty years. Um, and this is the event. This is the first event that was sort of, I thought competently and efficiently run by people, you know, millennials, um, people of the millennial generation. For me, it kind of felt like the next big wave is here. Um, Like, this is... It was bolstering to me. Yeah, that's good. Um, It was definitely bolstering to me. I think sort of the Stalingrad event was a sort of... uh, Trial for a lot of events, you know, and all of the good ideas that came out of the Stalingrad site were implemented here effectively, and that was that was cool. It sounds great. Um, to to go back to how the combat went on Saturday, we basically ruled the field the field until we agreed to lose as part of the uh, as part of the nineteen forty one scenario. So they pulled us back from like the horseshoe position we were in and they had us all sort of guarding the headquarters, and the Germans were going to come through with the half-track, and that was going to be it. <clears throat> so the Germans deployed uh, smoke canisters to mask their uh, their advance, and uh, I'd, like, seen the half-track throughout the... I'd, like, heard the half-track throughout the day, but I didn't actually really see it in the battle until the end, which was kind of cool. Did they have two half-tracks? They had two, yeah. Um, And so like, the Germans are deploying smoke, and at one point, um, I'd read a, I, I read a few accounts of, like, panicked Soviet soldiers in, like, 1941, um, basically, you know, wearing gas masks because they thought the Germans were using gas. Um, there's, uh, there's, there's a couple of accounts. There's one from, um, the Siege of Sevastopol, where he t- where a German soldier talks about going inside a, What is it? Blood Red Stow? What's the one where the guy is like, uh, in, uh, Uh, I don't remember. I think it was, uh, but, but, um, he talks about like going to this like Soviet bunker and like, they're all dead inside, but they're all wearing gas masks. So at one point, like when they, the Germans like deployed smoke, I had the gas mask on and then like, I heard the noise that like, I was told to like find a, a foxhole, but all the foxholes were occupied. And I just I hear the German whistles blowing through the woods, and the sound of the half track motor, and I just start digging, and I break out into um, "Song of the Volga Boatman," and it was cool because like the entire line of uh, Soviets, you know, all like sort of spontaneously breaks out into song um, as like there's smoke in the air and whistles blowing from the Germans who are coming up. And it was, it was so cool. It was so cool. Like, there were a lot of moments that felt real. And I think a lot of the moments that felt, you know, the realest for me was, you know, the anticipation of the attack, where, like, I'm not going to say that I felt dread in that moment, but I definitely felt, you know, something that, uh, that, uh, that hinged at it. Um... Like where it's like there's an armored machine coming and you'd best dig into the earth. Sure. So what what time did the tactical or the battle go until on Saturday? So the battle the fighting started at eight and it went until about five o'clock, which is I would say fairly long for a tactical. Um I was I was rather impressed. At one point, actually, we were hanging out in our foxhole, sort of awaiting the Germans' next move. This was maybe like two o'clock, and we were exhausted. We'd all probably got three hours of sleep, and we asked if we asked headquarters if we could be relieved, and they said no. We need you there, um, but we can get you some coffee. (laughs) And so, sure enough, um, this guy with a like a, a food canister, sort of the Soviet equivalent of the German Essenträger. Uh, which is, like, this insulated backpack, um, which contains, you know, can contain hot soup or, uh, or, or drink, uh, comes around, and, um, he's got this canister full of coffee on his back, and he's, like, ladling it out, and it was, it's funny, it's like little things in life, it, it was that little, sort of, morale boost, um, uh, that little, sort of, bit of caffeine in the afternoon when we were all going on three hours of sleep, um, it like carried me over for the next sort of three hours of the action that's cool, yeah, my adrenaline was up you know throughout that weekend, sure um so what what did you do after the the event kind of wound down after the event wound down, so the sort of last act in the field that we all did um, was basically we had a a meal at the uh the sashimi uh, if you will the sashimi yeah. yeah. Um, it was like a it was like a soup, and then it was like a like a Russian cucumber salad, and there was some there was some dark bread, and it was it was really good. Um, and uh, somebody on the Soviet side uh, had uh, written uh, each participant a typewritten letter um, based on what he knew about them, you know, in like a sort of period way, and so. You know, some were sad, some were funny, you know. Um, and so, like, we were all kind of sitting around, and then we started, like, reading some of the letters that we got. And um, it was, that was fun. And uh, it was also just cool to basically hang out from people all over the country. Like myself, you know, I came from Massachusetts. There was a guy there from New Hampshire. Um, you know, people from the South. There was a guy who drove up from... Uh, Texas. There was the whole contingent from California, plus um, the Estacionet crew, which is mostly out of the Midwest. And
0: yeah, a lot of people at the event. Uh, I mean, they they had had like local guys yeah, there. They had yeah. dug the the trenches yeah, or the, it,
1: the foxholes. It, like it would not have been possible to, for us to have the time that we did without the people who had gone there on their sort of free weekends before the event and um, prepared the fighting positions and so my hats off to them. And I think I mean I think that's true of all events like you need boots on the ground. You need people you need people to go in and um build some of the infrastructure, do the logistics beforehand. Um if you uh if you want to ensure a good time.
0: What about um you know do you, they had decided in advance not to go until Sunday?
1: Yeah, I think everybody was just really tired. I mean, people had been there since Thursday. Um, and so on Friday, on Saturday night, we kind of relaxed, we hung out, um, we fraternized with the Germans who, frankly, I hadn't even seen up until this point. Um, the other thing too, I do want to backtrack a little bit is there was one, um, medical emergency in the field, um, where one of the Germans, I think he like, twist, he got Fairly, he he was incapable of moving by himself. He got pretty badly hurt, and they called a ceasefire, and they had you know peop, you know people on the German side and people on the Soviet side who both had uh, paramedic training attending to him within within minutes, and we actually got him on a stretcher and we got him to when the half tracks was used as an ambulance to take him off the field. So that was that was pretty cool. It's cool to see that like. You know, when somebody is it doesn't matter like what they're doing. Like, people are going to come together and they're going to help this person and they're going to get them the help that they need. Cool. So, yeah. And so you wound up hanging out there at the site on Saturday after the. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was cool. I got to see some faces on the German side who I, you know, uh, didn't get to see during a tactical. So that was fun. I, I, I always um, relish the opportunity to um, fraternize with the reenactors and make connections because I regard that as being valuable. Sure. So I guess
0: just kind of in a broad sense, you know, what, what was your, the, the big takeaways from this
1: for you? Well, I mean, as I said, it really invigorated me that like my generation, um, can do events that are good. Like, I mean, I've always heard tell of, you know, the golden age of Fort Indian Town Gap, you know, in, like, the 90s and early 2000s. Or, like, that Odessa you talked about where a thousand people showed up. And I love that. I would have loved to have been there. But the sad thing is I couldn't go because I was either not born or a child. Um, and so it felt good to be at something that felt fresh and new. And um, I, you know, I, I cherish the local scene that we have. But that said... I would go to this thing again. I would, I, you know, I don't think I have the time off or the money to go to Indiana, um, or, you know, any state, you know, west of here. That's like a significant trek, like more than once or maybe twice a year if I'm pushing it. But that said, I would love to go again. What are the future plans for the event? Do you know? Um, there's talk about doing an event next year and, um, there's some talk about if they want to do, like, an 80th anniversary of a 1942 scenario or stick with 1941. Uh, personally, I'm a sucker for the 1941 kit, so... But, uh, again, it's above my pay grade. Um, it's not up to me. But there was talk about maybe doing an event there in the winter. Like, you know, maybe some sort of like, you know, Karelia or, like, Moscow or something like that, which I think would be really cool. Um, to see, like, the, the you know, early war winter Soviet kit, which I think is pretty cool, with, like, the Budenovka and, like, the colorful tabs on the Chanel and, uh, you know, the Pakasha. I, uh, I think that, I think that stuff is all really cool. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah, no, so I thought that was, I thought that, I thought that was awesome. Um, uh, let's see, what other takeaways? Um, I Again, I don't really know how much could be improved. I mean, again, I think you're always going to get little snafus the first time that you do an event. Um, And the one thing that I appreciated about um, this crew is, first of all, the officers were very attentive to the needs of their men, you know. Like, I constantly had people in charge of me, like, asking if I was tired, asking if I was, you know, if I had enough food. Um, I really appreciated that. And um, they seemed very conscientious the fact that people had traveled a long way to go to this thing, and they really wanted to make sure that they gave everybody the best show that they could possibly gift. Which, again, that means a lot. Um, so, my hat's off. To them. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, like, during the tactical, there were, like, like a few moments, I think, like, where I just like... What are the Germans doing? You know, like, we need to, like, call the Germans on the radio to determine if we're, like, resetting or not. Um, there was that one medical emergency, but, like, I think you get that with most tacticals. So. Right, I think that kind yeah. of stuff is pretty much
0: unavoidable. Yeah.
1: No matter how long running an event has been, um, I. I think that's sort of unavoidable. So, sure. my hat's off to the leadership on the Soviet side and the German side, too, honestly. They did, they, they, they did a really good job. Um, for their part as well. So, yeah. And I think the Astoshnik project, um, I, I applaud it. I'm ha- I'm proud to be a part of it. Um, like, these people, in by their own words, they want to build, like, an empire and a family. And I think they're on their way to doing it. Um, they, like, want to have, sort of, chapters in all parts of the states. And... I really think they're going places. It's one of those events you can't really describe, but you sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually in Normandy. I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage, but I do think that there is room to grow.
0: A lot of reenactors probably had like some sort of burnout maybe from like years past. It sucks, but it was a pretty good pause for everyone to kind of like regroup and like kind of like a Really nice refresh to get back out there. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up there. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you like what you hear and you want to hear more about this and a whole host of other topics, why not head over to our Patreon page, subscribe there, and you'll be able to hear the conversation continue there. Uh, as ever, we truly appreciate each and every one of you that signs up. Your support is really helping to keep the podcast going. So thank you. Ben, it's been great hearing about this event. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for coming thank you, on Chris. again. I appreciate that. And uh, to everybody out there, I will see you in the field. See you in the field.
1: Before we go, you may want to check out Fella Kopf over
0: at german-worldwar2.com that is german-ww2.com where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff and you can get 7% off of your next purchase there by using the discount code podcast2020 that is podcast2020 at checkout Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.